0: Hi, listeners. Uh, Today, before we start the episode, we wanted to take a minute and uh, make another announcement. We are very excited to be telling you about our latest media partnership. And it's actually with the department that Ryan is a professor in.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, uh, So my sort of real job is that I'm an assistant professor of computer science in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard University. And so a really natural media partner for us seemed yeah. like Harvard Seas.
0: Yes, definitely. So um, Talking Machines is going to be appearing on all of our regular channels, never fear. But now we're also going to be up on the University SoundCloud and iTunes U site. So you can find us there. So help us celebrate and spread the good news. You can find out more about all of our media partners on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Brian Adams.
0: And Ryan, today you wanted to talk to us about how machine learning helps Amazon and Netflix make choices about what our tastes are like.
1: Yeah, that's right. This is the area that we call collaborative filtering, which is kind of a weird name for uh, what is basically recommender systems. Now, proprietary systems like Netflix and, and Amazon and so on, I mean, we don't have a lot of insight in academia into how exactly those things work. But it is a really active area of research. The reason it's called collaborative filtering is because you can imagine a site like Amazon, of course, has, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions of presumably products on it and of course when you're shopping there you're you're kind of doing a kind of filtering and in fact Amazon itself wants to present you with only a subset of all of these possible products. It's called collaborative filtering because the idea is to use information about lots of other people that use say Netflix help you sort through all of the different say movies that you might consider looking at Mm -hmm. and so uh, Netflix learns something about you and learns something about the properties of the movies that they have, and then tries to tries to match those up and and help you have a you know w- watch something you're interested in tonight. Now, there's a lot of different ways that these kinds of systems can work, and a lot of different kind of cool ideas out there, and and it's its own subfield um, of uh, of computer science in some ways, and with some some cool conferences and lots of great researchers. One of the ideas that I think is most interesting in it is a kind of idea of using what's called matrix factorization to make recommendations. And these things have a lot of different kinds of names, and they've been reinvented a few different times. But they feel a lot like principal component analysis or, uh, or singular value decomposition, things like that, or non-negative matrix factorization. But they're often in the context of, of like collaborative filtering called probabilistic matrix factorization. The idea is really interesting. It's to view the problem of making a recommendation on a site like Netflix as one of matrix completion. So we could imagine a really big matrix that's something like, say, users, maybe are the rows of this matrix, and or index the rows of the matrix, and say movies, index the columns of this matrix. Okay, so any entry then is one user and one movie, and if it has a value in it, then maybe that's the star rating that you, uh, you know, that, that person gave to that movie. Now, the challenge here is that you want to be able to get good at guessing what the entries would be for user-movie pairs that you've never seen before. Any particular user has maybe rated quite a few movies. Any given movie has maybe been rated quite a few times. Um, But overall, the matrix is very sparse. So that is, we only see a very small fraction of all possible entries. So the question is, how can we take entries that we have seen and use those to generalize to completely new places? So you can imagine doing this in a lot of different ways, but the idea of matrix factorization is to basically imagine that this great big matrix is approximately low rank. Now, when I say that it's low rank, what I mean is that it can be written as the product between a matrix that is sort of tall and skinny and one that is really kind of fat and short. So imagine that we have a million users and uh, 25,000 movies then what we're saying is this million by 25,000 matrix can be written approximately as something that say a million by 100 matrix multiplied by a 100 by 25,000 matrix. And this is a really interesting view on how to make predictions, because what happens when you train such a model on a large but sparse set of, of say user movie pairs is that it will discover what we think of as kind of latent properties of both users and movies. And so that is what it'll do. Is it'll take every user and use those the rows of that of that that sort of tall skinny matrix. It'll use those the vectors represented by those. So these are say hundred dimensional vectors. It'll embed each of the users into the, that hundred dimensional space, and then it'll also embed all of the movies in a hundred dimensional space based on the other matrix that we're using to decompose the the ratings. So the idea is that. Um, every sort of user-movie pair can be viewed as the inner product between uh, the sort of feature vector associated with the user and the feature vector associated with the movie. Mm-hmm. So what you could imagine is that um, that these 100 dimensions associated with movies might capture interesting and different things. Maybe they capture things like, how, is this a... One dimension might be something like, how much is this like a foreign film, or how much is this like kind of like a romantic comedy? Is this kind of does this like have lots of like Michael Bay explosions in it? Or you know, you could imagine kind of a, a variety of different uh, of different properties. You know, that we would like to be able to discover in the in movies. Now we're not giving it these things a priori, but these are real properties of movies in general that that people respond to or don't. And then you as a user tend to sort of respond to those things positively or negatively so if you have like great big value for michael bay explosions because you're watching transformers whatever and you love that kind of stuff then your inner product you know you're sort of pointed in the same direction as that movie and so you'll tend to have a bigger positive number uh for your rating and then uh, but if you really hate that right? Then maybe you have a negative number. And so one of these movies then, um, you know, when you multiply by that, it becomes negative. And so then it subtracts from the rating that, that you would provide. And then you get a lot of these different properties and a lot of, um, and you have maybe possibly, you might have very complicated tastes and all of these things combine to give, to give a rating. Now, what's amazing though, is that you can find these kinds of, uh, these kinds of properties just from the ratings that you don't need to Uh, to load it with a lot of information about what the movies are but that people's tastes are sort of relatively coherent and So you can make quite good predictions about what someone will rate some novel movie uh, Based on the way that they've you know kind of rated other things and and from discovering what their feature vectors are Um, So the Netflix prize uh, was was a big prize to actually make predictions about the way that people rate movies with Netflix uh, Netflix data and um, this kind of view on how to make such predictions was one of the single most powerful methods uh, in in the prize and it really did some cool stuff. so for example, you wind up with these sort of 100 dimensional feature vectors associated with each movie and you can try to visualize those and and look at what movies tend to be close together in the space and so on and, and you'll discover some cool things about you know all of the you know, Lord of the Rings sequels are all sort of clustered together as you would expect and, and sort of movies relate to each other in ways that that we can kind of semantically understand when we like look at them in a in this post hoc way. And what's interesting is that it the kind of properties this thing this kind of approach would discover often uh, performed better than if you had loaded it with genre information and things like that a priori. But this idea, broadly speaking, informs a lot of different things, not just recommender systems, but also it's a way to do, you know, we've talked about topic modeling before, for example, and it's a particular way to interpret topic models where, you know, we're talking about something like uh, sort of documents versus words, and then that decomposes into a small set of topics and so on. So these kind of probabilistic matrix factorization models I think are really cool, and they permeate a lot of different kinds of problems we care about. And I view it as a kind of interesting mix between supervised learning ideas, where you have labels you want to predict, and unsupervised learning, where we're trying to find very general structure in data.
0: That's really fascinating. So uh, we'll have some papers up on it, and we'll have more about the the Netflix prize on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So this week's lesson or question is about how we make machine learning algorithms creative.
2: Hi, I'm uh, Ofra. I'm a PhD student working with Professor Barbara Gross on AI. Um, and my question is related to creativity in and machine learning. So in machine learning, you learn from examples you've seen, and you're somewhat restricted to the assumptions of your model. So... What are your thoughts about how we can incorporate more creativity where we actually come up with new ideas based on the examples that we've seen?
1: Thanks for the question, Ofra. I think this is is fun and represents a sort of a a very serious challenge in machine learning, particularly the kind of machine learning that I've been thinking a lot about lately where we want to use uh, these kind of supervised learning tools to actually design new kinds of things. In some of our recent collaborations, for example, we've been trying to uh, to use machine learning to design new molecules. And in this situation, we run into exactly what you're describing, which is that we're only really good at predicting the properties of molecules that look a lot like ones that we've seen before. And the question is, how do we be creative? So how do we go beyond the simple assumptions maybe that informed the kind of molecules in our data set because these are the ones that chemists understand, say, and instead really jump out of that, that kind of, uh, that space to completely new molecules that are very novel but that might, be, that might be very good. And in some ways, from a prediction point of view, this boils down to uh, the question of how do we do extrapolation instead of just interpolation? So things like deep neural networks and also things like Gaussian processes and lots of other ways that, for example, we do regression, really kind of are, are best at trying to blend existing examples together to make predictions about things that are kind of nearby. They tend not to be very good at trying to make predictions about things that are, that are pretty far out. And that's what I mean by extrapolation, so actually heading out in some, in some new direction where you sort of aren't within what you might think of as kind of the, I don't know, kind of the hull of the data that you've seen before. You know, this is an active area of research, and um, even in the simple one-dimensional setting of like time series, it's already pretty hard. I think we've been making some progress on this in a few different areas and a lot of it comes down to trying to redefine what it means to see examples. So rather than thinking about, you know, sort of complete examples, a lot of the successes in machine learning for difficult problems in the last couple of years have been about this discovering features that can be composed together um, and to try to understand the way that those features influence whatever label you want to produce in a, in a complicated way. And the hope is that we might be able to, and say in the case of molecules, discover sort of the way that these like subcomponents work together to produce some interesting properties and hopefully be able to characterize those subcomponents very well. And then you might imagine constructing completely new sort of very creative molecules in terms of those subcomponents. So the overall molecule now looks nothing like something that some chemist has uh, examined before, but the pieces can be very well understood. And this requires, though, really trying to find ways to tease apart the, the somewhat subtle properties of, um, you know, of individual aspects. Again, this is something that I think um, over the last 10 years and, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot better at, and, and certainly this is a big part of the resurgence of the, the sort of the neural network story in the last several years, uh, but there's still really a, a long way to go.
0: Thanks so much for your question, Ofra. If you have a question for Talking Machines, you can catch us on Gmail at Machines at gmail.com or on Twitter, T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. And we're sorry about the handle. Still. Yeah. So today on Talking Machines, our guest is Charles Sutton of the University of Edinburgh, and we started by asking him how he got there.
2: I actually did my undergraduate at a small college that you would not have heard of, which is called St. Mary's College of Maryland, that has the distinction of being one of the few public liberal arts colleges in the country. Um, I spent a year in Texas working for an artificial intelligence company called Cycorp, And after that, I did my PhD at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, working with Andrew McCallum. And I did postdoctoral research at the University of California, Berkeley, working with Mike Jordan. And, and I think that's actually where Ryan and I may have met. I think that's probably true, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and after that, I, um, I got a job, I went to work in Scotland. Um, people do ask me sometimes why I went to Scotland. In fact, oh, one time, um, I was teaching a class of undergraduates about machine learning. And as part of the class, we had a session in a computer lab. So it's this big lab with 50 students in it. And um, I was walking out of the room um, at the end of the session. And a student runs after me and says, Professor, Professor, I have a question. I'm like, OK. So I, so I turn around. And he says, why did you come to Edinburgh? I'm like, <laughs> OK. You stopped me to ask this. And I said, well, I, the same thing that I say to everyone else, and it's absolutely true. I say, they offered me a job. And he said, that's it. And I said, yes. And then he
1: walked away <laughs> very disappointed. <laughs> was he looking for some that,
0: magical reason?
2: That, I, I don't know what he was looking
1: for. <laughs> that, that undersells things pretty, pretty effectively. I mean, Edinburgh is an amazing place and, and, a, and a tremendously strong university in uh, in, in, this, in the stuff that you work on, and uh, well, and, and of course you contribute massively to that strength. So
2: there are certainly other places that could have offered me a job that I would not have accepted. Um, the uh, I'm getting to learn the British understatement, so that that's part of that. Uh, I, I think it's more English, actually, the understatement statement. Um, Edinburgh is a fantastic research environment for um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. It has a long history in these areas back to um, some of the famous names in artificial intelligence in the 70s and 80s. Uh, We're working in Edinburgh. Um, Now uh, there are Mm Um, at least, I'd say about 50 faculty working in um, you know what we might call now data science, but areas that are related to machine learning and 50 data. 50 faculty yeah, in that yeah. area. Wow. So if you count machine learning and uh, natural language processing, looking at text, uh, computer vision, looking at images, um, databases, both theory and practice, and the mathematics behind this, statistics and optimization, yeah, that's actually how much it is. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
0: So do you find um, that you have, you said that this is all sort of one one area and that there are 50 faculty in this one area. Do you find you have a lot of collaboration or are things?
2: Yeah, we do. So um, I've, I've certainly collaborated with other members of the machine learning group, uh, like uh, um, Amos Storkey and I had a paper at NIPS, I think, three or so years ago, um, I've also had collaborations with the natural language processing group. Um, some of my background is in natural language processing, and then we've been applying this, uh, you know, both kind of doing text processing, but also uh, kind of maybe more unusual applications of, of text processing uh, more recently. So there's a good amount of interaction. Uh, We're actually, um, most of us are based. In a fairly new building, it was—it's uh, probably about five or six years old now, um, which is called the Informatics Forum. Um, there are, are 500 researchers, including faculty, um, PhD students, and postdocs, who you know all across computer science and artificial intelligence. And it's this award-winning building that was you know, designed to encourage uh, research interaction.
0: Hmm. You've become really interested in in, uh, questions with regards to computer programming.
2: Yes, that's right. Um, So my original background, uh, like I said, was in machine learning and natural language processing. And within the past couple of years, we've started uh, moving this in a different direction. Um, There are now billions of lines of source code on the internet um, because of this open source movement and a lot of them are of professional quality so um, some of the programs you might use like Firefox are now completely open source and you can go to a website and download all of their code and this raises a really interesting opportunity because within these you know, this billions of lines of code there's a lot of implicit knowledge about how to write code that works well and is easy for people to understand You know, when we talk about running software, we talk about it as a programming language. And in some ways, that's a really bad analogy because uh, a program that you write in a programming language has to be a very precise set of instructions that you give to a computer. But in another sense, the analogy is actually really very good because when I write a program, I'm actually not just writing it for myself, but I know that when I write it, there are other people later, which might even be myself later, who are going to want to fix something in the program. And they're going to have to read the program and understand what the heck I was thinking um, when I wrote that particular set of instructions. So computer programs are a means of human communication. When you write a program, you are writing it Maybe thirty percent for the computer and seventy percent for some person
1: who's coming behind you. So writing it for yourself six months from now is the way I try to think about <laughs> exactly when I'm commenting things. I, I, it's like a diary or something.
2: Yeah, uh, if I went to some program that I wrote four years ago, you know, who knows how much I would understand? But it's not the same as going to it the next day. Yeah, and part of that is just when you write a program there's this um i almost feel like it's like you're like carmen miranda that you've got this huge plate on top of your head and on this plate is the name of all of these little things like mathematical things that you had to define to make the code work you know you might have you know 100 variables in one source code file and to write them, you have to remember why you created them all and what they had to do and what facts are true of these variables every particular time. So if you wonder why computer programmers are usually, you know, maybe, shall we say, awkward people to talk to, um, it's because they have to think very precisely, and they have to hold this large number of precise statements in their head at one time. And the type of person who can do that is not always the type of person who can have you know, normal conversations.
1: It's such a funny thing when you put it that way. It's almost as though, imagine that every time we wanted to have a conversation, the first thing we did was agree on a vocabulary. Yes, Let's yes. introduce a large set of completely novel words and agree on what they mean, and now we will communicate using this new, this, uh, this new vocabulary.
0: That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: it would be awful. That's, that's like literally what it is, though. Mm-hmm.
2: And the fact that everything has to be precise. When we talk in, we say human language, natural language, it seems strange to have a special term for the way that people actually talk. But in computer science, we actually do. It's called natural language. Um, When we talk in natural language, all of the words we use are imprecise. They're fuzzy. They have more than one meaning. There's boundary cases where, oh, I'm not sure if that thing's a chair or a stool, but it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Um, When you're writing a program, you can't have that. Everything has to be exactly precise. And I think that actually makes communication less efficient to a computer. Right, because there are th- there are distinctions that we don't have to explain. Because I know you'll understand what I mean, and that allows us to communicate more more concisely.
1: It's not what I say; it's what I mean. Yes, yeah.
2: yes.
0: So you're taking a look at uh, programming languages. Excuse for using the term. Yeah. Um. Is and and trying to figure out what makes them a more communicative or mm-hmm. effective language.
2: Yeah. So what makes text in programming language that's written by a professional developer seem natural and easy to read Mm. to another programmer so one example of a system that we have that you can actually download if you know how to write programs Um, is one that helps you actually define this vocabulary that Ryan was talking about. So if I want to contribute like a patch, some small fix to one of these open source projects, I might have to define some new variables, some new um, terms in this vocabulary in order to make the fix that I'm trying to make. So all of the programmers who have already been writing this project, they had to invent these thousands of names. And without ever actually explicitly coming to an agreement, there are certain patterns to the way that they'll choose these names. So there are certain types of variables that you see over and over again. Um, so for example, in a program, you'll often have to do, th- do something repeatedly. Like you'll have to do some operation for every element in a list. So I need to have some um, variable in my code that keeps track of where in the list I am. If I'm a programmer, I'll always call that I or J. Now. Why? It doesn't matter, but everyone knows what that means and so when I see a variable like that I know what to expect. Um, so a pattern like that everybody will know about, that's not a problem. But there are a lot of cases where you'll see one of these variables that will have some, um, some conventional type of name, but that might vary across software projects. You know, different groups of programmers might pick a different name for this type of concept. And so when I go to a new project, I might not be sure if I've got this variable, what type of name is going to be more consistent with what the programmers in this particular project expect. But that's the kind of thing where statistics can help. So what we can do is look at all of the existing code in a project and say, when I see this list uh, variable that's used um, at the same time has these other um, words in, in the program, then I know that I usually expect to see a name like i or j and not a name like this is a counter that indexes through the list and so what what our tool does is it counts up how often do i see each name in each particular context and then when a programmer says well i'm not sure about this particular name give me suggestions it'll say well other people in the code in the same context when they've been writing this project they use these kinds of names maybe you should consider
1: using those names too hmm. Hmm. so have you taken advantage of any of the sort of natural language aspects that people might often use for variable names that, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know, imagine that we're counting, uh, you know, the number of dogs in this picture. Mm-hmm. You could imagine a variable named called numdogs or yes. something like that. It's a very common kind of pattern that you could imagine exploiting in this situation. Is, is that something that you think about?
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. So we haven't yet incorporated this kind of information in the type, in the system that I was just talking about, but you're right that it's something very natural to include. So what program tend to do is they tend to use phrases to name these things. So if you have something like number of dogs would be something, it would be a good example. So you have when you have a variable that is a thing, like if he's a number or if he's a series of words, then you'll tend to see the name that a programmer use be something like a noun phrase. So they'll take like a three word noun phrase and then smush them together into one name, like number of dogs, all one word with O and D capitalized. Um, when you have uh, what we call in computer science a subroutine, like a, like a set of instructions that I might call again and again that does something, then we tend to use a verb phrase. So we might say increment, counter, smush together. That might be a, a name of, a, of a, a, what we call a subroutine. So this kind of regularity is something you could imagine doing. The other type of thing you see, if, if you look at the names that we've used as examples, some of them are very, very short and some of them were very, very long. And what you tend to see is for these kinds of stereotyped variables, like the one where I'm iterating through a list, you'll see very, very short names, like one or two characters. But for something that's more domain specific, like the breed of a dog, then you might see something that's kind of a longer name that has multiple words in it. And I think that's a really interesting regularity. Uh, People haven't really taken this into account because this line of research is very, very new. But I think that is something that's going to happen soon.
1: Different communities also seem to use interestingly different patterns. I, I think of you know some communities use this kind of Hungarian notation, yes. right, where they specify the type with a certain uh, with a certain character at the beginning or a certain short phrase at the beginning. Uh, other communities are famous for using big long sequences of camel case. I don't know something mm-hmm. like Java, and then different languages also have uh, you know say say Python have a, a sort of conventions that that are very strong within their within their communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this something that you sort of adapt for the different, different communities or different projects?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting direction as well. Um, it's amazing how emotional programmers get you'll have seen this right you're smiling Um, programmers get really really attached to these kinds of conventions Uh, I don't actually remember what any of the codes are in Hungarian notation I don't know if you remember any of them
1: I don't remember many of them but there is variations of this you know people would use P uh, in some cases to indicate that you're you have a pointer Um, And I feel like M underscore in Hungarian notation means something maybe member variable or something like that.
2: Yeah, so if you ask one of your friends who's a programmer about this, they will have some very polarized views. They'll either tell you how great it is and because we have this special code that we put at the beginning of our names, I can just look at the name and tell what type it is and it's great or they will go off on a rant about how horrible it is and I can never remember what type of code you use for what type of name, and I had to work on a project like that once and it drove me crazy and I hated it. But whatever you ask them, it will be very strong feelings that you get. Um, one of my collaborators on this work, he used to be a professional programmer for um, not some bank or something like that, and he actually specifically remembers one conversation where they were trying to agree in this meeting on what which ones of these conventions that they would use, and it just Degenerated into a shouting match (laughs) because that that's how much it matters to now why it matters that much i don't know i don't know if um if the particular convention that you choose actually makes a program easier to read or if the only thing that matters is that everybody chooses one that they're happy with Mm. or even if programmers think this matters but it actually doesn't matter very much and they're just kind of very very um particular, shall we say. Um, and right now we don't know which one of these is the case, but I think it is very safe to say that programmers do care about this.
0: So do you think, um, this? and this may be a step too far, but do you think that once there's some, you, you've you looked a little bit more into it, uh, that particular, particular programmers using a particular type of, of agreed upon notation are doing a particular, creating a particular work like financial work Mm -hmm. lends itself better to this type of language or notation, or if I'm doing something with medical records, Mm -hmm. that that this is better.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. I don't have a very good intuition about this. Uh, Certainly, there are other types of patterns that you would see in code that would be much more strongly associated with this type of domain. Um, So when you have a, a program to solve some kind of modern, large application, it would not at all be unusual for the program to take millions of lines of code. And when you have this, you know how do you even organize this, right? This was this isn't just a book, right? This is almost an entire library yeah. or a shelf, maybe, <laughs> if you were going to print this out. So how do you organize this in such a way that anyone can understand what part of the shelf they want to go into to make a certain change? Um, so. To deal with this, programmers have all types of strategies and constructs that help them organize a particular body of software. And there are all sorts of patterns about how the different um, subcomponents of a large program relate to each other and how you have you hide information. Almost like you would in the CIA, or where in Canada I don't know what the Canadian equivalent of that is. There, hopefully, there isn't one. That the would be Mounties. great. Yeah, um, it'd be good for Canada if they don't have a CIA. Yeah. But, um, but um, in programs, you have information hiding because you want to make things less brittle right? If every single detail of one prog- of one part of the program depends on every single detail of another part, then nobody will keep all of the details in their head at once. Right. The plate will fall off all the programmers' heads, and so you'll have lots of mistakes and bugs that be- because of that. So programmers try to compartmentalize, and so every part of a program state is kind of on a need to know basis Mm -hmm. and so the way that programmers organize this type of information that's something else where we can do statistics and machine learning and say that um you know these particular components it's almost like a social network
1: Mm -hmm. right
2: they talk to each other in a certain way the kind of facebook friends of the um of the accountancy part of the program will be the accounts receivable and the accounts payable and the budget module Um, and you know there there are lots of interesting patterns in um, at that kind of level that you know there's there's some research on this but it's it's only beginning to be explored I think. Hmm.
1: So what's the sort of, what's your vision? So given amazing tools for making inferences about the way that these things are structured, you could imagine all kinds of different things from uh, taking a program and making it canonical, say according mm-hmm. to particular patterns, or bug finding, or automatically generating comments for better pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your vision for what to do with, uh, with these tools? Um,
2: I think that You want uh, the programs and the statistical machine learning to do the things that they're good at, and you want the people to do the things that they're good at. So what you would really like is for the program to be aware of all of the details about the code that the programmer either, isn't aware of so in this example that we talked about with naming there are a lot of conventions in the code base that a new programmer won't be aware of so then you can imagine a suggestion system based on machine learning saying look here are the patterns in the code base that you don't know yet you know maybe you should keep these in mind while you're writing the code you're writing now the second type of thing is just all of the details about a particular uh, computer program that are just so specific that it will take a long time for even the person who wrote the code to remember them all and get them back into their head. Um, One thing that I find amazing about computer scientists is we have this large amount of metaphors for our own mental processes that are based on what the computer has. Um, So unfortunately, I can't use any of these metaphors without giving you a 10-minute lecture about some (laughs) aspect of computer science. but you know, every um, there are lots of little structures behind an operating system that we just use as analogies for uh, for a human brain. So, for example, if your system runs out of memory, say you start up too many programs, then um, well, one thing that could happen is your computer could just crash. Well, that's bad. So instead, what happens is the computer takes the things that you haven't used so often and he writes them to disk. So the what's good about that is now you don't run out of memory, so your computer doesn't crash. Um, but disk, it turns out, is actually a lot slower than memory. That's why people use memory first. So um, we call this swapping. So when you move something from memory to disk, that's swapping it out. And when you move something from disk to memory, that's swapping it back in. And uh, Ryan is again smiling because he knows where I'm going next. I, I'm
1: laughing because, you know, you you... Uh, You know, before we started recording you, uh, you mentioned a project that we've been, we have a very early stage collaboration on and you started talking about it and mentioned sort of the moment matching aspect of things. And I could feel my brain swapping it back in and almost literally said that. Sorry, Charles, I've got to swap this back in.
2: Yes, yes. (laughs) So what we do, so the reason this came up here, so yeah, we just had this experience. Um, The reason that it came up in this conversation is just like in a research project, all of the details of a program are something that the programmer knew at one point. But, you know, a year later, they're not going to remember it. But then if you reminded them about one or two of the details, suddenly they'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. So it really seems like what's happening is our brain is swapping in all of these really specific details from our long-term memory into our working memory. So when we talk to each other, that's the term we use. We use the same term from operating systems as we do when we're talking about ourselves.
0: So Charles Sutton of the University of Edinburgh, one of the most amusing computer scientists I have ever met. Definitely. Yeah. So that's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Ryan Adams.
0: And tune in to us next episode.